This episode of All Things History with Umhiza was made in association with the University of Manitoba History Students Association. The University of Manitoba campuses are located on original lands of Anishinaabe Cree, Ojibwe Cree, Dakota, and Dane peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. We respect the treaties that were made on these territories. We acknowledge the harms and mistakes of the past, and we dedicate ourselves to move forward in partnership with Indigenous communities in a spirit of reconciliation and collaboration. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first ever podcast episode for the All Things History with Amhiza. I am your host, Celeste Petrick, and today we are discussing Marxism and capitalist theory with our guest, Professor Henry Heller. Welcome to our podcast, Professor Heller, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm absolutely delighted uh, to uh, be joining you. So I would just like to first introduce, reintroduce myself again, I should say. I was in your first year history class, uh, modern world history from 1800 to present. And that was all the way back in September of 2015. It was my first ever history class in university. And it was really, yes, it was such uh, a shift. In and what years. did you make of the whole thing? Yeah, tell, tell me. I was very, very confused my first few weeks. I, I grew up in like rural Manitoba, so our education wasn't really tailored to academics. It was more to create tradesmen, to create uh, just working economic people. Uh, there was five of us from my graduation class that did go on to university. My history classes in high school weren't really academic. I had never written a formal paper before. So it, being introduced to your class right off the hop, I felt like I had just been hit by a wall. I ended up taking my syllabus and going to my high school history teacher and being like, I have no idea what I'm doing right now. Can you please help me? And he was like, well, who's your professor? And I was like, well, Professor Henry Heller. And we had a good laugh because apparently my high school history teacher was also a student of yours when he was in his undergrad. Well, you know, like um, we have these large classes in the first year and so on. And it's true. It's, uh, and I, I am aware that, like, you come into class and in these large classes and uh, you're inundated with this uh, material. It's very important to try to try and uh, bridge the gap between the professor and the student. And it's one of the problems in the university in general. But for me, it's been always through the years, how do I reach the students? How do I get close to the thoughts of the students, which has a, a perennial question for me right through my teaching experience. So yeah. That's what I would say. And so, I mean, as you describe yourself, I, I, I'm really sensitive to the, you know, what you're saying. Uh, and it's really a crucial question, making that contact, because uh, in terms of uh, inspiring uh, uh, students to learn, making some sort of emotional contact with the students is very important. Oh, yeah. And I remember your lectures were always so deep and so insightful that I sat there in the pews in the Bullard building and we our classroom had desk pews 
And I had a good laugh at that one too when I had first walked into the class and I was like, what am I getting myself into here? But then you had just started and you were so passionate about what you were teaching us. And we are all like 18, 17 years old. Like we have no life experience. And here you are just so passionate about, I remember it was the French Revolution. And I think you almost like you were so, so passionate about teaching us about what all of the social constructs that were going on during the French Revolution. And I still have your book to this day. I think my little cousin has it because I gave it to her for one of your classes. But yeah, like I was very, very impressed by just how passionate you were about teaching and how you just wanted to make sure that what we were receiving as students was the best that you could give. Well, I guess um, I would say that, well, the French Revolution is inspiring for me because, you know, it's the first time that the ordinary people in society enter into the historical process in a really a powerful way. And it's such a dramatic moment that it just, um, uh, you know, I, 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 uh, I developed a passion for, you know, a French Revolution plus when I was doing research, I had certain contacts with some of the great uh, historians of the French Revolution, like uh, Soboul, for example. Mm-hmm. I met him and uh, I heard him speak and he mesmerized audiences. And it's both the event itself, but also the personal contact with uh, scholars that um, can sort of inspire a kind of lifelong uh, passion for a a subject. That's what I would say. Uh, That that is the background to what you experienced. Exactly. Yes. And from that experience stemmed my absolute desire for academic writing and just historical academics. That's wonderful, Celeste. That's really marvelous. Yeah, like I, I don't think if I was in a different, because my plan in university was not to major in history. I had just taken the history class because I loved my high school history classes. So I figured, well, I would probably like university history, but I didn't think I would find such a passion for it. Really? That's that's really uh, uh, absolutely fabulous because, I mean, uh, you have done what um, uh, many students really don't uh, succeed in doing. That is to say, it's not only about, um, the, well, it's the subject matter, of course, but it's um, combining uh, sort of a, an intellectual and an emotional uh, understanding of things, which really can really inspire so, and, and really illuminate, uh, you know, uh, the past but also it helps you to sort of understand the present as well. When you, you know, you sort of, uh, when you do that, uh, it can be illuminating in a critical way is what I would say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like, yeah, now I'm going into my final year with my advanced history major. And I think that the world is my oyster right now. I have so much just knowledge of the past and what it can do for myself in the future. So I think that that has just been the biggest gift that university has given me, I would say. Uh, my undergraduate years, I picked up a sort of view of his, of uh, the way to sort of understand society, especially I was influenced by this anthropologist, Leslie White, who's uh, uh, even now regarded as a very important figure in sort of the study of um, uh, society. And 
he was uh, um, very important in my intellectual formation. And so uh, without uh, uh, sort of adopting a sort of particularly dogmatic approach to Marxism, I, I just picked up this framework. But over the years, you see um, the, first of all, the Vietnam War, and then everything that's happened since, and my, my sense that uh, really um, the Vietnam War was the sort of beginning of um, a, an extremely serious uh, and uh, uh, turn point in the history of capitalism that um, Marxism began to become more and more um, uh, to the fore in terms of the way I approached history. And so in particular, I really cut my teeth in terms of taking an explicitly Marxist position precisely on the French Revolution, because the study of the French Revolution, especially in North America and in England, was dominated by people who uh, rejected uh, the Marxist um, view of the French Revolution. That is to say that it was a middle-class revolution, a bourgeois and a capitalist revolution. And I uh, asked myself, how, okay, they have a lot of criticism, but what is the alternative model to this model? This, is, of course, the model it dates back to the middle of the 19th century, this view that it was a, a bourgeois and a capitalist revolution. And it wasn't merely Marx. It was uh, some historians who were basically middle-class historians who took that point of view. So what I determined to do, and this was an important publication for me, I wrote a book, basically from the perspective of a Marxist interpretation of the French Revolution, which had basically been marginalized, and it created a real um, a certain splash. People began to notice, and this uh, book has held its ground. It was published really at the beginning of the um, the new millennium, and it. Uh, has consistently held its ground as uh, absolutely uh, sort of fundamental to uh, looking at the French Revolution. So from there, I was encouraged to go further. And one of my interests certainly was modern history. And one of the questions uh, central to uh, early modern history, that is to say the 16th, 17th, and, and 18th century, is did capitalism get going? And so I, I wrote uh, another book uh, called Birth of Capitalism, which was basically uh, giving people an idea of how Marxists viewed uh, the coming of capitalism, the development of capitalism in, um, in Europe. And uh, this book, I think, got even more attention from scholars because it certainly took account of non-Marxist views. The book, The Birth of Capitalism, it does discuss, for example, the ideas of Max Weber, very famous in terms of the development of capitalism and so on. But it also gives people a good understanding of the sort of Marxist view of how capitalism got going. And so that was a second important book that I wrote. And then subsequently I wrote, I began to write about the overall history of capitalism. Uh, lately I published a book, basically um, a, a history of capitalism from a Marxist point of view. Mm -hmm. And uh, Rutledge published it 
and uh, indeed, the Chinese picked it up. And of yeah. course, the Chinese are becoming more and more important. And uh, a Chinese edition of this book, A Marxist History of Capitalism, was published. I had the good fortune to actually go to China and to lecture in Chinese universities and to, to sort of see what was really going on in terms of Chinese academe. And th this itself is absolutely fascinating. Uh, people, people need to know this, that the Chinese universities are highly developed. They closely follow uh, all of the discussions, the historiographical discussions that are going on in Western countries. And there is uh, open debate. This was what really blew me away. Uh, like when I gave a lecture at Nanjing University on my book, at the end of, the, at the, uh, end of my lecture, uh, they asked me, well, uh, you're, you take a, a view that capitalism is in trouble. Well, we had a scholar from, she's on our faculty, she's in cultural studies, and she disagrees. This is uh, a, uh, a professor, at the, a woman at the University of uh, Nanjing. And we had a big debate in front of 250 people about the future of capitalism. It was absolutely fascinating. And the Chinese students were really taking it all in. Uh, it was um, uh, quite amazing. And I would say this, furthermore, I had a lot of, I didn't, I had some discussion with faculty members but I had a lot of discussion with students and the students really know what's going on in this world. You can't imagine the, uh, these private discussions that I had with the students were amazing uh, in the sense that they were completely open about, uh, you know, uh, uh, their own society, the West. Uh, they knew, uh, they knew the score. They were, they were completely plugged in. It was uh, absolutely fascinating to, to find this out. And I would say we need more contact, uh, you know, because uh, uh, China is becoming more and more important. And uh, uh, the possibilities are um, absolutely amazing in terms of what could happen, in terms of the development of knowledge uh, based on these kinds of contacts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had the fortune of watching a YouTube video of you giving your book tour in um, at McNally and Robinson back in 2018 when your Marxist history of capitalism book was published and you had given um, very good insight as to why you think that it was so important for the Chinese uh, scholars to recognize your book and your work as a Marxist historian in conglomeration with capitalism. Um, just because of the modern rise of China right now and how they are dominating the economic world and your theories on how you think that um, the economic model is now going to shift back towards China and not the U.S. Well, I would say that um, what's, uh, what's happened uh, is simply that because of the political and economic evolution of things, including the rise of China, uh, which considers itself to be a socialist country, and I agree with that, that Marxism, which was once uh, eclipsed when the Soviet Union died 
and neoliberalism and postmodernism took over uh, in terms of um, academic study and so on. Uh, uh, Marxism was completely marginalized, but the overall evolution of things, the, the, uh, the, the successive crises that we've been living through, economic, ecological, political has led to a kind of uh, to a revival of Marxism. Marxism has, has not only become more important in the uh, study of history, but um, uh, it, it has uh, revived across the board uh, in the social sciences and in the humanities and fields like geography, fields like literature. Uh, Marxism has uh, has become uh, actually the dominant model in these disciplines. So uh, I, I feel in a sense vindicated by uh, this approach that I've, uh, I've adopted. And I feel um, generally the academic profession has become more receptive, is what I would say, yeah. Absolutely. So in your uh, Marxist history of capitalism, you have it sectioned off into four major sections of the book. Uh, what are those four different theories and how do they evolve over time? The different theories of, of the evolution of capitalism? Yeah. Or the development of capitalism? Yeah. Well, I would say that, um, uh, well, we should mention that uh, I already mentioned Max Weber. And Max Weber, um, he uh, insisted that, uh, uh, asserted that capitalism um, developed actually um, um, in relationship to Protestantism. Um, he wrote this famous book this, uh, uh, on um, capitalism and Protestantism and basically asserted that uh, it was the development of this Protestant ideology of work, of discipline, and so on, that uh, basically led to a capital economy. Then there, this, the second uh, non-Marxist view would is basically a, what I would call a kind of institutional approach. The development of markets, development of the state, certain preconditions uh, have to exist, and it tends to be eclectic. Uh, but it, it basically takes that various institutions, when they come into being, make it possible for a capitalist economy to emerge. As for the Marxist approach, I would say basically there have been two basic models. One model insists on a, a sort of a trade-based model, which is the development of trade at a certain point, the development of commerce uh, led and a money economy led to the development of capitalism. The other economy puts a stress on, and uh, this was certainly the, the view of Marx himself, uh, there was a change in the, what we call the social relations, the class relationships. First of all, the decline of feudalism, with it the decline of serfdom, the decline of personal dependence uh, uh, personal dependence on the part of producers on landlords um, led to a new situation where you have the uh, emergence of uh, a class of middle-class peasants and they begin to employ 
the poor peasants as wage laborers. In other words, the social relations change, and it's this change in the social relationships which basically give birth to capitalism. Uh, the development of wage labor, which makes possible uh, profit-making, accumulation, investment, and so on. So that's uh, the stress on social changes in social relations as against a merely commercial view of the development of capitalism. That, that, that would be the, um, the view. And I tend to take a kind of mixed view, stressing social relations, but also um, the importance of trade, the importance of money, I would say I, I stand somewhere in between these two Marxist positions. Yes, absolutely. Just in your book here, you have um, the four different, or I guess five different sections that you have in your Marxist history of capitalism. Um, you start with like merchant capitalism, so that is before any like industrial revolution that is just like kind of like martyr system capitalism is how you would describe it i think it's uh, important don't people don't realize that capitalism starts around 1500 1500 is a very good date a very important date i think you know we have this idea chronological uh, uh from a chron chronological point of view 1500 is uh, the beginning of modern times in some sense the end of the middle age well certainly from a Marxist point of view, that's absolutely correct. Uh, that, that is uh, absolutely key in the sense that these social relations that I've talked about uh, actually begin in England, but also to a certain extent in the Netherlands and Northern France and Northwest Germany. These changed social relations certainly make themselves evident. Also the development of um, overseas markets uh, at, at that very time uh, with Columbus, et cetera, the discoveries, discovery of the new world, the gold and silver, which makes possible huge amounts of money with, and also the, um, the uh, direct route to Asia. So 1500 is very um, uh, important. But what I'm really getting at is that capitalism, before you get to the Industrial Revolution, um, you have centuries, almost uh, three centuries, uh, when capitalism exists, but there's no Industrial Revolution. Uh, uh, capitalism is developing in agriculture, um, in what we call the sort of uh, handicraft manufacturing system or manufacturing. It's only you know, around about 1760, 1770, that capital enters directly into production. That's what uh, makes the Industrial Revolution, uh, that is to say, the entry of capital into the actual productive process and the transformation of the means of production, that is to say, uh, manufacturing uh, by the development of heavy industry or and uh, uh, the steam engine, machine manufacture, the development of the intrusion of capital and the expansion of the forces of production, this is what marks the Industrial Revolution. And really, at that point, capitalism becomes so strong that it really begins to transform everything, politics, society, uh, the old system 
really gives way, but it takes a long time. It takes a very long time, three centuries. Yeah, absolutely. How would you describe how capitalism had evolved from a post-World War II era into the neoliberalism of the 1980s and the expansion of the wealth inequality in developed worlds? What we can say is that uh, capitalism, of course, its real heyday was the 19th century, as everybody knows, the Industrial Revolution. And of course, uh, the countries that were the most developed from a capitalist point of view conquered the whole world. Uh, the, they imposed um, uh, imperial colonial control over most of the uh, most of the world. So capitalism was extremely strong. And then, at the uh, in the first half of the night of the 20th century, it ran into very serious problems. First of all, uh, the capitalism was not a single system. There were rival capitalisms. They began to fight one, uh, one another and it led to two great wars. And um, also in the middle of the period of the two great wars, there was also a huge economic collapse. So you combine the Great Depression with the two world wars, and you could say that capitalism was in extremely serious shape by the outbreak of the Second World War. And then what, what I, I would say happened was capitalism uh, recovered. And I mean, um, meanwhile, I should mention, of course, that a whole rival system emerged first, of course, uh, with Russia, the Russian Revolution, and the Soviet Union, and they were victorious in the Second World War on, on the on the European continent. They dominated, um, uh, and um, uh, shortly after the war, China went communist. So the whole of Eurasia, uh, by 1949, China and Russia, the two great countries. Uh, had gone communist. So it seemed that, hey, capitalism was on the ropes. But it took capitalism um, after 1945, gained a second win. It recovered. Uh, and in a sp very spectacular way, because the world we know today was basically invented after 1945. Um, this was a um, a capitalism which was based on uh, obviously a huge expansion of the forces of production. Industry was uh, on a scale uh, larger than it ever had been, but also in addition to mass production, there was they, uh, the invention of mass consumption. And uh, this consumerism uh, gave new life to capitalism. Secondly, I would say that the creation of the American empire, and I don't hesitate to use the term empire, it was the dominant capital. All of the other countries would, were dependent on it. The Americans had the uh, intelligence to basically promote um, free trade as much as possible. And so the whole global economy opened up. And so you have 
mass consumption, uh, mass production, mass, pro uh, mass consumption, um, a kind of globalized market. And I would also say that um, all of this was uh, in a way based on what are, is referred to as class compromise. That is to say, ordinary people, the workers and others were given a piece of the pie. The, there was a major improvement in the advanced capitalist countries. I'm not talking about the third world, that didn't happen, but in the first world, um, there was a, a vast improvement in the condition of life of people. So, my God, under these circumstances, um, why would you support why ordinary people in living in the West? Why would you support communism? Communism is all about people. And so um, there was this great um, um, boom of the 40s and the 50s into the 1960s. Uh, these were the golden years of capitalism. So capitalism arrived and so on. And then ran into trouble again. There was the Vietnam War. There was runaway inflation. The economy began to stagnate. And the result was that uh, by, the, by the 1970s, this, uh, there were a series of crises, there was serious inflation, and that's when neoliberalism, fundamental premise was uh, government had intruded too far in sustaining the system. The government was uh, interfering with the marketplace um, and impeding uh, the full development of capitalism, uh, productive forces, and, and um, the market. And so the government, instead of um, intruding further, should actually withdraw as full, as much as possible um, from society and make way for the, if unleashed market, laissez-faire was the idea. And so for the next 40 years or so, um, until Lately, we could say the last decade, the last 15 years, um, uh, up until then, neoliberalism, neoliberalism took over. And the result of that was um, there was a certain economic growth during that period, more, uh, punctuated by crises. But at the same time, the uh, ordinary people, workers, basically lost out people, um, their um, income stagnated or even declined during this period of neoliberalism. The rich got richer and ordinary people either stayed the same or their uh, life situation deteriorated. That happened in Canada. It happened even more dramatically in the United States, certainly in Europe and, and in the third world, of course, after crisis until we reach the present where the crises have multiplied one on top of the other and people feel this growing insecurity and they don't know what's gonna happen. That there's a kind of underlying um, sort of unease and anxiety that uh, permeates people's lives uh, because the system seems to be in trouble. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've had this conversation many times with my own parents and my boyfriend's parents about just how our generation and like my friends and everyone that I am in contact with, we see neoliberalism as not this great economic system. We see it as suffocating everyone and that we need to be more socialist but still have capitalism and have a good marriage between the two of them so that we can move forward with everyone being able to provide for themselves and to grow if they so desire. Well, you know, um, that, uh, as you uh, as you spoke, it reminded me that, uh, like your remark that uh, you, you saw uh, neoliberalism as sort of suffocating. Well, the thing is that neoliberalism isn't merely sort of a, an economic doctrine taught in economics department. It's a veritable culture and politics, you know, and it has a, a huge agenda, uh, including, you know, the way it defines individuals as kind of isolated beings, uh, each in competition and disconnected from um, uh, everybody else. Um, and uh, it, it, it uh, sort of, uh, it has a kind of um, economic ethic of uh, ruthless competition, each uh, individual responsible for himself and for nobody else. And so it, it, um, it is, of course, uh, a, a, a terrible way to live in, in my way, in my way of thinking. And of course, it's being rejected by the, uh, by the, uh, by the people. The people have turned against it, especially the younger generation. Yeah, because, absolutely. Uh, uh, you, uh, you can see it waning, you know, Government in, in this uh, uh, in this uh, COVID crisis, government has had to intervene massively, hugely, um, and uh, the market simply doesn't respond to these uh, conditions. No, no, and just like speaking from my own experience, like I've only ever lived in an economic crisis. I That's like right. my my work experience started in twenty twelve. So I've only ever experienced going through the economic system and growing through working and having these responsibilities, but not seeing the benefits as my parents would have back in the 80s or my grandparents would have back in the 50s and 60s. Like it's it's do hard for our about, um, like uh, do they speak about those days as compared to today? Oh yeah, like I have, well, especially with my uh, my boyfriend's dad because he's a business owner, he has multiple businesses and just trying to understand, I get that he is a capitalist to the core. Like he absolutely want to make the most money and save the most money at the same time. But there's this societal need to be more socialist, to have more for everyone and not create super billionaires like jeff bezos who can use the people's money and go to the moon like that that just doesn't make sense to myself and a lot of people in our younger generation yes yes uh it's amazing how uh um uh especially the accommodation of the ecological crisis and now the the plague that we're we've been living through seems really affected people's consciousness yeah you know? uh, 
And uh, there's a lot of questioning going on about uh, the way things have been working. Yeah. That's what I would say. Absolutely. So in your opinion, what do you think is the best approach moving forward for society? Is it going to be absolute socialism or is it going to be a mix between capitalism well, and socialism? Yes, I understand. Well, uh, one of the things that uh, my historical studies ta taught me is that, uh, certainly uh, one of the, uh, like, uh, uh, I've, um, I've, I've written this book with Peter Kolchiski on modes of production. The, one of the central questions is the, the way things transition from one mode of production to another. The classic example is the transition from feudalism to capitalism, but also there was a transition from hunting and gathering to agriculture way, way back at the beginning of civilization as you probably know. Um, so the question is, if we assume that the system that we live in today is in crisis, and I think there's a lot of evidence that that's the case, um, what, what uh, is the alternative? And uh, obviously there is um, the, uh, the alternative, of course, is socialism. Uh, well, unless you're going to go back to feudalism or to hunting and gathering. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, without being facetious, in part, the answer is we have to sort of reconsider those earlier modes, which still exist. I mean, we have uh, still in, for example, Canada, huge areas of the country are still dominated by hunters and gatherers. Mm -hmm. And um, that has to be taken into consideration, not only from a political and social point of view, but also from an ecological point of view. That is to say, these people live in a balanced relationship with nature. So do traditional farmers in many places of the world. They have a, um, so um, preserving those ways of life, preserving say the hunting and gathering mode is not such a bad idea uh, of industrializing everything, uh, create huge reserves of the landmass of the earth, which are reserved for hunters and gatherers or more or less subsistence farmers who can make a living. Mm -hmm. But so um, there's that, but I would say that um, the Chinese model and uh, you must understand Canada and each country is going to invent its own model, in my opinion. There is no, when we talk about socialism, it's a, a very broad category. Mm -hmm. And there will be particular socialisms in different places. People will, will invent their own sort of futures in different countries. And I would say that, but the, the thing, about uh, the uh, Chinese model that I want to uh, underline is they fully understand some of the benefits of capitalism and the capitalist market. And so their view is the public sector 
has to be the dominant sector in the economy, but there should be a lot of room for the private sector within a system where the public sector, and here I would stress the need for that public sector, as I see it, to be under democratic control through what we understand to be democratic processes. Mm -hmm. the, the decisions should be made by the people as a whole, but at the same time, uh, the, the market, private enterprise um, has its place. There was a wonderful historian by the name of Braudel. I don't know whether you've ever heard of him. No. Uh, he's a very famous French historian. And uh, he, he's, uh, he was a founder of what we call the Annal School of History, which used a lot of quantitative techniques in terms of studying history. But one of his remarks was, he was a socialist. He was not a communist, he was a socialist, uh, I would emphasize. I'm just making the distinction because it's important to make the distinction. Bardell said in a clever remark that a socialism without restaurants is inconceivable. In other words, uh, we, don't, uh, we don't want, uh, I, I for one don't want a, a socialism of austerity and suffering. I want to suffer a, a, uh, a system which is filled with pleasure and opportunity. And so um, uh, there, is, um, there is certainly within an overall structure where there's some control by the public sector, a democratic public sector, for a continuation of um, uh, enterprise and markets and so on. That's what I would say. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. To move forward as a country coming out of this kind of stint of crisis that we have been in for the past like 10 years, would you say that free trade is going to take a hit on that and countries are going to become more introverted and involved in their own resources? as opposed to relying on trade? Are you, are you asking me whether um, is, the Canadian state and other states are going to become inward looking and uh, sort of um, uh, each uh, country will be for itself? Is that what you're-, more, you're Yeah, more in a sense, yes, yeah. Well, I would say that that's impossible. It's just not possible. Uh, uh, we live in what has become a globalized world. The, we live in a world where the ecological problems are global or the problem of controlling these, um, these infectious diseases like COVID absolutely must have intensified international cooperation. Um, and so, um, and production itself has become globalized. So. The idea that uh, your uh, countries are just going to cut themselves off from one another and so on. First of all, politically, it's a very dangerous idea because it just will intensify the sort of rivalries and conflicts between states. But also from an economic and ecological point of view, I, we need more international cooperation rather than less, is what I would say. 
yeah, that is absolutely, I agree with that. In terms of moving forward, what would you recommend from a historical perspective is the best route to take to have better managing of like just political systems, economies, the free market? Is it? Well, I guess I would say that the, um, the biggest danger in the world comes from the United States. The United States is a country which uh, its success, and it obviously it has been historically very successful uh, and uh, became after the World War I, the, the greatest um, economic and financial power. And then after World War II, the greatest political power. And certainly when this Soviet Union went down in 1989, 1991, um, you had a unipolar world. But this country, uh, that is to say United States, has come to be dominated by a relatively small number of people, the famous 1%. Uh, they have a deep ideological commitment to their own success, that is to say, based on uh, the capitalist system and also a sense of their own exceptionalism, their own greatness. And I would, I would uh, say, of course, in the past, they. They were a great country and so on, but they are stuck in a certain mode and they're trying to hold on to that. And the world is changing. I talked about need for internationalism on, on one hand, and uh, you cannot dominate the world based on the principles of neoliberalism that they're, they have been espousing, reinforced by militarism. It just won't work. And uh, this is what they're trying to do. And unfortunately, I would say that Canada, because it is a, a relatively weak neighbor, has been forced to go along with this. Uh, they, the Canadian foreign policy has taken a, a, a certain turn, which is not, uh, in my view, very constructive. They're supporting the United States in a lot of uh, aspects. This, this uh, well, the dangers, for, we're not going to resolve the problems we face the ecological problems, the problems of disease, the problems of massive social inequality, the lack of confidence people have in the system that we're living under based on the principles that the United States is pursuing. And there is the danger of war, the danger of war. It does loom uh, in the background. In the past, countries that have been on top um, have tried to preserve their um, their superiority by means of uh, force. The United States is doing a similar thing. Uh, I don't feel that this can succeed. And uh, there is the danger that we could, by, uh, we could say an accident, unleash some sort of terrible uh, cataclysm. And um, I think that people are vaguely aware of this, but uh, it does loom in the background. Yeah, absolutely. Um taking what you had said there about war and historically we have seen throughout modern history that after a war is when the revitalization happens. Do you think that to get out of this crisis that the modern world is in, will there need to be a huge cataclysmic event like a war to get us out of this crisis? Well, certain people actually see that. Uh, certainly, um, the war, the World War 
one uh, and World War II, and I would even say the Korean and Vietnamese conflicts were periods of, of great uh, economic activity and uh, people made money, even ordinary people made some money while the soldiers were dying. The capitalist economy uh, benefited, but I don't think that that is a, uh, so given nuclear weapons, I don't see how that could be. Um, um, I think that uh, war would be, war also has brought revolution and uh, you know, uh, Russian revolution, Chinese revolution came out of this, the, um, the Second World War. Um, there's likely to be, well, you can't calculate the outcome, but the people who start wars often miscalculate how they turn out. So uh, it's a very dangerous thing. Plus, of course, the fact that so many millions of people, who knows, humanity itself could be obliterated in such a conflict. Absolutely. That's what I would say. Yep. To kind of end off our discussion here, what in an ideal situation, if you were to propose how the world will come out of these economic, geographic, environmental, just every sort of crises that we're in right now, what would you suggest in an ideal situation is the path to success out of this? Well, I think that the, the most serious, um, like we're having this interesting conversation and uh, I think we are engaging and we're bringing out in terms of this discussion, what, what are some of the, what are the dynamics behind the world that we're living in and what possible solutions there could be to uh, the crisis we're in. The problem, one of the key problems, blockages, as I see it, is people are terribly uh, uh, outside history classrooms and maybe some other classrooms. People are in terrible confusion. They are very confused about uh, the, uh, their consciousness uh, is, um, is, uh, is very confused about what are the causes of the situation that we're in, what are the, the real dynamic, what's going on, and what possible solutions there are. Because they simply aren't, there is no uh, way in which uh, we can have this discussion, uh, we have this discussion between the two of us, but what needs to happen is that Canadian people as a whole and people elsewhere have to have these kinds of discussions so that things are clarified, become clearer what, what really is going on. I see there is a basic blockage of information in our society. People just don't have access. The media really either don't report things or don't, don't analyze. They give you a lot of information, but analysis and things are not put together in any way in any cohesive way so that people can achieve a sort of overall understanding what the circumstances are they are and uh, so i would say that information is uh, one of the key problems the lack of information and then i say i think people have to sort of the people uh, i would stress that have to organize themselves uh, it is interesting, and this is a, in a way a parenthesis, but we do see 
here in Manitoba, one of the things that's happened as a result of the COVID crisis, I don't know whether you can confirm this because you're, I think, perhaps better in touch with things than I am. But this uh, government that we have at the present time and the COVID crisis and the general insecurity, people have begun to talk to one another a little bit. There is a sense that uh, their conversations are going on uh, amongst people, but there's a lack of um, opportunities for people to sort of organize themselves in some sort of political way to sort of try to begin to make some sort of difference in society. If that were to happen, the existing political establishment would begin to play, pay attention. Right now, they can just carry on as if nothing is, you know, we're going, somehow we're going to restore things to quote unquote normal. Well, they're not, they're, we're not going to be able to do that. If the politicians understood that the populace, first of all, understood where they stood, where they stand, what the circumstances were, and they had vehicles by which they could sort of express themselves, I think you would see uh, they would have to respond. And that's what I hope happens. Uh, I, uh, we, we desperately need this, not only in Canada, but in many other countries as well. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. There's a lot of almost as if gatekeeping of the political system from the mass population. And especially considering the times that we're in, there has been a lot of conversations that have been had between academics and not even academics, just normal, regular people that are questioning whether or not the current government and the current system that we have, is it the best system or is it a broken system? Well, it's I would say that um, there is a feeling of frustration in the, uh, in, um, in the population about the lack of responsiveness. Uh, I mean, I would say, of course, the Trudeau government, uh, if we're talking about Canada, I would say the Trudeau government has done certain things. They had to do them. I mean, they had to spend trillions of dollars for fear that the economy would collapse. That's what they've been doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, they need to they need to give the population a sense that the the state responsible people is going to intervene to make sure that we come out of this situation in better than uh, in better shape than when we went into the situation. Uh, the, 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 those politicians, those political movements, which do that are going to succeed. And those that are, gone, are, are are pretending that things can go back to quote unquote normal, that the market is going to take care of everything. Uh, uh, people are gonna turn away from that. They have turned away from it. Yeah, they absolutely have. Like you, we saw that at the beginning of the year with the Robin Hood traders absolutely destroying the big institutions with an AMC stock like that I think changed a lot of people's minds about what is the market and why is it working like this? And why are people with all the money saying that these companies are not going to be making money? So they're shorting them. And then you can see normal people being like, no, don't do that. We're actually going to band together and stop it. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast, Professor Heller. Is there any final 
thoughts or words that you want to get out? Do you want to maybe perhaps um, talk about the class? Well, I, I guess uh, I would like to say you're uh, interviewing me, and I know that you're going to go on and interview um, other professors as well and ask them about their outlook and the research and so on. I think this is a fantastic initiative. I think that um, uh, the students are really taking things into their hand and uh, they are, you and the others, the, you've created this website and I think you're going to, result of this is you're going to, um, you're, you're, you're going to really enliven um, life in the history department. And uh, I really welcome this. Uh, and the fact that the students are doing this uh, is absolutely heartening. And uh, I, I wish uh, you every good luck in, in, in doing it. And anything I can do to, to help you, I, I absolutely, you can depend on me. I, uh, I'll, I'll do whatever I can. Absolutely. I would be so excited. Maybe you could even come on as a regular guest once a month. We'll have talks with Professor Heller. That's cool. That's <laughs> cool. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted. Uh, we, we should maybe perhaps have overall discussion. Another thing we could do is um, we could have a conversation once a month. Um, you know, uh, conversations about history. And really, we could just talk about history, we could talk about politics, and we could have interchanges between profs and the students. That would be a good thing, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We could even get like a panel going of just a great communal conversation. You're, you're really uh, creating something new. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I look forward to speaking again with you in the future. And I bid you good luck in your fall semester classes. It's been a real pleasure, Celeste, this Excellent. conversation. Excellent. Thank, thank you, you so much. much, Professor.